0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is on the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is May the 3rd, 2022. As always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco, which some people see as the future of the world on the edge of the West a place that's the signpost for the future. We certainly did a show about the future. We've done many shows, but perhaps the man in the Bay Area, in the San Francisco Bay Area, who most encapsulates all the cultural complexity and ambivalence of innovation is a man called Stuart Brand. We did a show on him uh, a couple of weeks ago with the New York Times writer, John Markov, who has his... um, biography whole earth the many lives of stuart brand brand seems to symbolize the summer of love culture of san francisco which got manifested or transformed or translated into technology Uh, men's journal described brand as the last prankster but of course there have been many pranksters before Brand, before Stuart Brand, before Ken Kesey, before the psychedelic revolution of the 1960s and 70s in the Bay Area, there was an English artist and visionary, a man called William Blake. And uh, we're not talking about Silicon Valley today. We are talking about Blake with perhaps the world's leading authority on, on, on Blake. John Higgs is the author of two books on Uh, William Blake. One is uh, William Blake Now, Why He Matters More Than Ever. And his latest book is William Blake Versus the World. Uh, It's already out in the UK and it's just out in the US. It has a purple cover in the US and a darker one in the UK. And I'm thrilled that uh, John is joining us from Brighton. Hi, Andrew. Good to talk to you. So, John, um, I don't want to make this all about Silicon Valley but would there have been a Silicon Valley without William Blake?
1: Um it's I mean Silicon Valley is where it is because that was where the psychedelic counterculture of the 60s was. Um there's um I think John Markov actually you mentioned I think he wrote a book about that. Yeah um, he wrote a book about where about the dome or so go.
0: It had about um, the psychedelic Cowan. revolution and the connection between psychedelics and alternative right. reality and the computer revolution
1: that's right there was a culture of people going we should have our own computers in our house as extensions of our brains which had never sort of existed before uh, and that did come from that psychedelic background and the psychedelic uh, background was very very inspired by William Blake uh, particularly through um, the doors of perception uh, the oldest Huxley book the title which is one of the first uh, uh, literary examinations of the, the the psychedelic mind and when huxley was experimenting with mescaline um he tried to find you know words to to describe what he was experiencing and the only thing he could do was to go back to blake because william blake um lived in that similar world lived in that sort of visionary world so this, you can see a direct link through there yeah certainly
0: so, Blake, um, for people watching, we have the Wikipedia page on Blake. He lived between November 1757 and August 1827. He wasn't a man particularly famous in his times. Um, John, as I said, you, you've dedicated two books, quite an achievement, to William Blake. Mm. Um, what is it about him that makes him, in your view, such an important figure? I
1: think, I think we're catching up with him. It's been two hundred years since he died, and uh, when he died, uh, he was essentially ignored, or if he wasn't ignored, he was mocked or derided. The best and of he... us, John,
0: are ignored, right? Anyone yeah, absolutely, is, is a bit dodgy. I think these days,
1: <laughs> absolutely. But I mean, he, you know, he had a um, a pauper's burial uh, in Bunhill Fields, which is on the outskirts of, of London, in the centre's uh, graveyard, is an unmarked grave. Um he had one exhibition in his life, one solo exhibition, uh, and you know, he sold nothing and he got one review uh which referred to him as an unfortunate lunatic. So it's <laughs> it's pretty clear that from you know, from the art world of the day, you know, he was nobody. He didn't
0: matter. Did he care, uh John? Was he someone who was in any way influenced but why white- by what other people thought of him, because he was clearly considered a bit of a lunatic in his time. Yeah, I mean, he, But did he
1: know that? And did he make any effort to be more normal? No, he didn't really. Uh, I mean, he, he did care. He, he, I mean, it definitely affected him, particularly in middle life. Uh, and when he got into uh, his his elder years and he started to attract young people who got him, who understood him and supported him, that really changed him. That really meant quite a lot. But he would, he would always talk about, you know... Um, his audience uh, was essentially the people of the future. You know, it was for the spirits and the eternity. Um, and in, in that realm, he was more famous than you could possibly imagine, he would he would say. And he's kind of right. He's kind of been proved right. There was um, there's a huge retrospective uh, um, exhibition of his work at the Tate Britain uh, just before the pandemic. And it was it was a massive event. It was... Um, they sold about a quarter of a million tickets. They had about three hundred of his artworks, um, and it was overwhelming the, the amount of work. And this is just looking at him as a as a visual artist. The side of him that was a poet and a and a, and a, and a writer um, that's a whole other thing. And you just
0: how did he? Um, given that he was completely unknown, given he was remarkably productive, as you say, both as a poet and as an artist, mm. how did he survive? How did he actually do what he did?
1: He was a grafter. he worked. I mean he was a trained engraver so he would get work doing engravings for other people. Uh, but he also he, he so was an artisan had, in some ways. Yeah, an artisan, but it was a bit more a bit more of an industrial sort of working class vision than you might think as, as an art, artisan. It was a lot of like it was like metal and it was like acids and it was labor and it was hard work. It, he's tied him a lot with the romantics who are often seen as, you know, lounging around on, you know, chaise lounges, smoking opium, letting, you know, the muses come down their arm into their quill pen to write their poetry. And, you know, this sort of, this sort of um, very sort of privileged uh, vision of of the luxury Was he, I mean,
0: he was living at a fascinating time when Britain was. Oh, yeah. um, Disrupting the world with the Industrial Revolution. Was he a romantic Mm -hmm. in terms of industrialization, in terms of, the this imminent machine age was he nostalgic for another age or was he looking forward or simultaneously both backwards and forwards?
1: Uh, always simultaneously both backwards and forwards, but he did see that the horror of what uh, working in a in a mill uh, did towards the end of his street when he lived in Lambeth. There was a, a, a one of the first mills down the south in England called Albion Mill, and it, it sort of burnt down. So he was well aware. Uh, of what conditions were like and he, in one of his most famous uh, verses, he talks about the dark satanic mills, um, which I think gives a very clear indication of... uh, And so he was uh, very influential on later
0: Romantic poets, the Wordsworths of the world.
1: Yeah, he was a little ahead of them Uh, and it was only when they came along that people started to go, oh, now William Blake makes a bit more sense, this... Uh, when they, they the way the Romantics um, uh, looked at other aspects of humanity, other than you know uh, our logical and our rational and our productive side, and they, they were really sort of um, praising the 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 other side of us, which is exactly what Blake was doing. But they, they are really different. I mean, there's there's a fantastic letter he wrote, uh, which turns into a poem in 1803 to his friend Thomas Butts, where he talks about going out for a walk on the Sussex Downs and. Getting into an argument with a thistle, and this thistle was a thistle, but it was also uh, this spiky little figure who was sort of haranguing him about his life choices. And uh, and it's it's so different to Wordsworth going out and seeing some daffodils and being enraptured about the the beauty of the daffodils. Blake was out sort of arguing with the plants. (laughs) Rather than you've done two books
0: on him, Um, John, as I said, uh, William Blake now, and this new book. William Blake versus the world. What made him so unusual? Was he just born as a genius, as a present figure? I mean, you yeah, compared to Stuart Brand or any of the other visionaries mm. in Silicon Valley, he's he makes them look like footnotes.
1: Yeah, I mean, they had the um, they were looking that they made sense to others around them. Uh, Stuart Brand, Brandon particularly, was looking forward in a way that maybe a lot of the '60s weren't, and so he makes a lot more sense to us now. All the whole Earth catalog and using that image of the, that Apollo Eight was it? Image of the Earth from space, um, hugely influential on our, our culture. A really important person. But they did have people around them who got it. There was a there was a culture, you know. Blake was very much the first. Um, and so there weren't people around him who understood it. And he didn't sort of help matters and that he didn't really make an awful lot of an effort to explain his mythology, his way of viewing the world, um, you know, his 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 issues with the establishment. He just sort of thought people should know, but they didn't, because he, he was very much the first. I think the, the musician Julian Cope described him um, as like, the first cloud coming over horizon before the following storm. You know, Blake came first and 200 years later, that's us now. He's very much sort of pointing the way out of the age of enlightenment just as it was really starting, I think.
0: So you place him in the counter-enlightenment movement. Of course, he was living at a time of great political upheaval of the French Revolution, Did he have a politics? I know you compare him in some ways to the the Levelers, um, yeah, which were a century more than a century before in England. The the radical, the radical. I guess they were communists in the seventeenth century English Revolution who lost, um, who were replaced by Cromwell and then
1: the counter revolution.
0: Did is there a politics to Blake, or is he the ultimate atheist? Yeah.
1: No, he's very radical. And this was at time of particularly the French Revolution, which made the English establishment extremely paranoid and very, um, very eager to clamp down on any sort of radical um, thought or radical publications. So it was it was dodgy at the time to you know wear the right red coloured beret to support you know the the French Revolution and 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 so on. There was an incident where um, he found a soldier in his garden. Uh, and he sort of marched the soldier out of his garden and back to the where he was billeted um and the soldier then claimed that uh blake had been saying damn the king uh which was sedition uh at that point so he was there was he had a big trial for sedition and he could have died he could have been hung uh, such was the you know the the uh the, the the culture at the time such as the politics at it's the time it's interesting
0: we did a show uh a couple of months ago about christopher Marlowe, another nice highly disruptive english cultural Mm. figure although he was more mainstream than blake uh, i'm guessing that the institution that would have been most fearful of blake would have been the church because he isn't a conventional enlightened anti-cleric is he he's offering a new version of christianity
1: yeah i mean he would say he was a christian um and uh, he was a true Christian. That's how he would see himself. Um, but it's pretty clear that his vision of Christianity is not the one that most modern day Christians would recognize or, or Christians at the time. You know, he didn't like go to church or anything like that. He, it's he a kind wrote, of wrote, Gnosticism, isn't it? It's, a, it's, a very close to, ubiquitous. it's very close to Gnosticism, but it doesn't have that sort of um, uh, dislike of the body uh the the sense that the, the, the soul is trapped in the body that you get in Gnosticism or a lot of uh uh types of Gnosticism that's gone from him. He was he would write about um priests in black gowns were walking their rounds and binding with briars my joys and desires. The 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 notion that the church was crushing down on uh you know sexual liberation on on you know physical joy um for for Blake, ecstasy was ecstasy. It didn't matter whether it was sexual or spiritual. It was still, it was ecstasy. Um, so yeah, he's very, very critical of the church, whilst at the same time, you know, truly believing that uh, what that Jesus essentially, which is, which he conflated with the imagination, just to complicate matters, uh, was the thing was, you know, the most important part of our, our, our world, our universe.
0: What were his influences, John? Who did he read, or what did he see that shaped his world view?
1: Well, Milton uh, was big. was a big influence. John Milton, uh, Shakespeare. He loved Shakespeare. He loved the Divine Comedy. Um, he he uh, artists that he thought were inspired. Um, he was he was very dismissive of um, the the university system uh, of people who go and do the rote learning. Um, I wasn't a
0: big fan of Isaac Newton, was he?
1: Well, no, absolutely. But if you look at that image you've put up, he's not just that's not a, a typical diss of Isaac Newton. You know, he's made him look like a Greek god. You know, he's he's buff, you know, he's hench. He looks he looks golden. So there's always nuance to um to uh Blake's attacks. You know, it's um he his vision of um his understanding uh, of how newton saw the world he was extremely critical of absolutely critical of but the um the importance of newton and his influence and uh you know he would you know happily recognize and then he'd betray him in those sort of heightened sort of ways even though he thought he was just uh, wrong essentially dead wrong it was the time it was the time of the age of enlightenment and uh, the, the notion that we were moving from people who thought that faith was primary into people who thought that reason was primary. Uh, and, you know, Blake was quite happy about moving away from seeing faith as primary, but he thought reason was only just a, a small, you know, part of what the mind was capable of. And if you just boiled the mind down to reason, you were just losing everything uh, that mattered in life.
0: You've written a book on Timothy O'Leary. I think there's a straight line between Blake and O'Leary. You've also written a mm-hmm. book about Britain, Watling Street. You're actually mm-hmm. quite prolific. You're a little bit of a William Blake in your own way, um, John. <laughs> uh, Watling Street travels through Britain and its ever-present past. Yeah. One of the things that really strikes me about Blake is how un-English he is, um, how different he is from the iconic mainstream culture in England, and how Britain could have generated a man of such unique genius.
1: Well, that's fascinating you say that, because um, that's not how I see him at all. But it's interesting that, um, particularly in America, he would be seen that way, because there's a vision of England, that's, um, I don't know, Downton Abbey, or, or, or something like that, which I as a person who's lived here for 50 years, don't recognize in the slightest it's not the world I'm from it's not it's not the country I'm, I'm brought up in um and for me Blake is very English he's he is that English mysticism, uh, mysticism um personified and it's and it's fascinating that you know England is a country that doesn't have a national anthem there's a British national there's God Save the Queen you're supposed to sing but it doesn't have an english national anthem except it does and it's jerusalem which is blake's uh, blake's words set to music by hubert parry and it's unofficial but everyone accepts it everyone in england knows that really our national anthem is blake it's is is um is is jerusalem um so he he's, he's this fascinating figure and that he's not really uh he's never part of the establishment yeah. except except they his his, yeah, and
0: here's his image of Jerusalem, actually, looking at that reminded me, I don't know if you know, uh, he's supposed to have influenced Dylan and Dylan's song, mm. Angelina, when he mentions Jerusalem, it certainly brought to mind that uh, yeah, it's I, fascinating, um, fascinating subject. I'm talking with John Higgs, the author of William Blake versus the, the world. Um, John, I, I want to take a short break now. And then after the break, I want to talk specifically about this new book. Mm -hmm. why you needed to write it, having already written a book about uh, Blake. So we'll be back in about 60 seconds with John Higgs, the author of a fascinating new book on William Blake, William Blake versus the world. Don't go away. Hi everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keen On show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keen On show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other You can watch these shows live, uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is, and on their LitHub Live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page so whatever your preference whatever your taste whether it's video or audio or text there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show now back to keenan we're back with John Higgs the author of William Blake versus <coughs> the world uh, John you're also as I said before the break the author of William Blake now why he matters more than ever mm-hmm. uh, as well as this new book, Uh, William Blake versus the world which is a wonderful title why did you need to write two books about Blake why are they different
1: yeah I mean I started to write William Blake versus the world um, a a proper book which is an attempt to be a way in for people I know the impression I get is a lot of people think there's something about Blake there's something interesting there I'm drawn towards it but I don't know how to get in it's the example i always use is like he's like this extraordinary like you know gothic castle that you sort of encounter and you know there's like wonders and treasures in there but you don't know if you're allowed in or whether gatekeepers are trying to keep you out or even if there is a, a way in so it's very much um, an attempt to lead people into blake's work so that they can get a a, a, a grasp of his mythology to the extent that they can start reading him um, and we're in a much better position now to make sense of him in the 21st century uh, with what we know about you know, the mind and the brain and, and all this thing. And, this, and, and all the research has gone into his, his work in the 20th century. It's a great time to sort of try and engage with him and, and sort of tackle with him. The first book was just a little bit. Um, it's only a short little essay. Uh, and it was it was more about his influences on our culture now. Uh, uh, which is, which are fascinating the way he sort of, you know, he comes up through like video games and, and comics, you know, and and you know. So it's like this Bob visual. Williams,
0: um, it's this visual culture. Um, you wrote a book, "The Future Starts Here," an optimistic guide to what comes next. You've also written a book about timothy o'leary i have america surrounded the life of timothy o'leary uh, timothy leary again yeah.
1: I, I think he would appreciate you irishing his name slightly he would have loved that
0: yeah 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 <laughs> well if he's listening he's not listening he's not around but if he was um <laughs> yeah. of course leary is very infamous or famous for his championing of psychedelics is there something about uh blake and psychedelics we've done some shows on that we had a a show with Stephen Kotler recently, A Post-Human Future, which we able to fully empathize with the natural world. Kotler's uh, mm. new book, The Devil's Dictionary, is an interesting take on our psychedelic future. What, what's your take, um, John, on on Blake and psychedelics?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Certainly in, in the 60s, the, the idea that Blake had visions because he was taking mushrooms was, was um, a common one. It made sense to a lot of people. It explain explained quite a lot. Was he? I mean, no, is that yeah. just
0: rumor or he didn't?
1: Yeah, he wasn't. I mean, his visions—he had them throughout his entire life, from being a small child to an old man. They were sort of consistent uh, thing, and there wasn't um, a tradition of taking psychedelic mushrooms for consciousness raising reasons, for, for want of a better term. There wasn't, um, hadn't been an Aldous Huxley or a Timothy Leary to sort of put a positive. Framework around it. If there are any any accounts of anyone taking psychedelic mushrooms in England uh, in the 18th century, uh, uh, they're to horror stories. They just think they've been poisoned. They think they've been possessed by devils. Uh, they think they're going to die. There's not. It wasn't a positive thing in in any way. But it's interesting that the research that's being done uh, now, particularly in the 21st century, on the impact of psychedelics on our mind and things like that. Um, Uh, are revealing fascinating things that do seem to apply to Blake so though what was happening to him was natural um, uh, was how the brain works it does seem to be very similar sort of things that were happening to uh, when people take psychedelics Um, and he always thought that the visionary aspect of him was something that anyone could do. It was anyone could sort of train themselves to do. It was about it was strengthening the imagination. The imagination was was the key uh, to doing this. And and for what we know now, that does make a bit more sense than it might have done like a hundred years ago. That does. There is a plausible sort of way of looking at that, which I, I go into at, at length in the book. So I, I, yeah, I, I, he wasn't taking drugs himself, but what was happening inside him. Uh, is connected to that culture, I think.
0: Yeah, when you look at his art, and again, people watching will see some images of his art, there is a a psychedelic quality to it as if perhaps yeah. either he's on it or we're on it or we're all simultaneously on it. Is that just coincidental, do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, he, he always said that um, he saw in vision everything he painted, everything he drew. Um, and he, he meant this. He, he saw them in his mind's eye. Uh, and there's a wonderful, you've just put up the picture of the ghost of a flea, which is this horrible sort of scaly little demon. And it's got a little a, a, uh, acorn, which is it's gonna drink blood from the acorn. And it's, uh, it's a horrible sort of thing, but there's sketches of when he was doing that. Uh, and at one point the, the ghost of the flea that he was seeing in his mind sort of shifted position and moved his jaw. So Blake was like, "Oh, I'm going to have to stop again," and he had to draw it again. How it was now, it wasn't that you know he was just inventing these things; they they were they were visually, at least, very very real to him.
0: Uh, looking at some of his work, in some ways, reminds me of Hogarth, but there's less of a, an overt political quality to the art, is there?
1: Yeah, I mean, the politics were um, very important to Blake, but it was it was more um, about justice. Uh, And things like, you know, um, Child Chimney Sweeps, the issue of Child Chimney Sweeps, was something he wrote a lot about in in various poems and things like that, because it was about suffering. It was about, uh, you know, the inhuman way that these young, innocent kids would be sort of crammed into these dirty, choking, dusty, dark spaces that would distort their bones and and things like that so he was well ahead of the curve on on things like when he's writing about uh, slavery uh, um, about about sexual liberation for women things like this that not a lot of people were sort of tackling at that that point in time Uh, you know he knew Mary Wollstonecraft uh, and things like that so he was he was very radical in his outlooks but you know he's in no way did he Support a particular politician, or care about a particular party, or or engage in the you know the um, the, the froth of political debate in, in the moment. Uh, it was it was much more uh, humane. His politics,
0: John. Lots of people have compared, um, including one analyst, June Singer, have compared his work hmm. to Jung and Freud. Um, yeah, is there something Jungian? or almost freudian in his focus on yeah. the body and on sexuality
1: yeah and on the mind i mean he was writing you know 100 years before freud and jung um so there wasn't a tradition of psychoanal- psychoanalysis then but he was really attempting to do it. His, his the mythology that he created, all these different sort of strange, mysterious figures. You, you put up a, a picture of Eurizen leaning out of this void with his, his beard being blown by these primordial, you know, winds and things like that. Figures like that from his mythology, they represent part of the mind. That figure represents reason, the sort of the limiting um, power uh, of reason. And he was interested in how the different parts of the mind clash and the energies uh that come from this from the the contradictions of the na- dynamics between different parts of this of the psyche so an awful lot of his stuff can be read as you know psychoanalysis but a hundred years before there was psychoanalysis and a lot of his his insights uh into our minds really stand up you know he was he was astute he was he, he was on it
0: i mean he was truly prescient. i think um for the twenty. 20- twenties, we've done a number of shows about neurodivergence, We did one with the English author Rebecca Schiller has written one of the first literary memoirs about neurodivergency, um, uh, attention disorder, perhaps autism. She has a new book out a thousand ways to pay attention. Mm -hmm. Do you think that Blake might have himself have been autistic?
1: Not autistic, uh, but it's certainly the case that um, or,
0: or neurodivergent in the way yeah. we use that word today.
1: Yeah, I think I think so. Um, his mental health wasn't good during a period of the early eighteen hundreds. That's that's certainly for sure. But I think on a broader point than that, I talk in the book about um, a condition of hyperphantasia. Do you, I don't know if you know hyperphantasia. There's a spectrum. Um, yes for a at one end, which is people who have no mind's eye, no, can't visualize anything at all, uh, which is extremely common. And, you know, a lot of people at Pixar have it. A lot of artists have it. They don't have a mind's eye at all. But at the other end of the spectrum, there's the hyperphantasic people for whom uh, the mind's eye is just like the eye, essentially. If you were to say to a person, close your eyes and, you know, imagine a cow what would happen in the minds of people would vary massively, even though everyone assumes that they're normal and they're, everyone would be the same. There'll be people who nothing happens in their minds, a people. But hyper people, essentially, there'd be a cow there. You know, they'd they'd be able to see the steam coming off its if it's fur, they'd be able to smell its breath. It would be so real and so vivid. Um, uh, and that's, I think that's that fits very well with how Blake describes himself and his visions. And when I was talking earlier about how he saw in vision, everything he everything he painted, it all came from his imagination, but they were real, you know, they were really, really sort of there. Um, so yeah, he's certainly um, neurodivergent on the aphantasic, hyperphantasic spectrum, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure, yeah.
0: Presumably, Blake wouldn't have been Blake without being Neuro, radically neurodivergent, he wouldn't have been able to realize these visions and both in print. Yeah, absolutely. I mean,
1: everything from that, everything came. You know, he was like that as a child, and that sort of put him on on the path.
0: What Um, about his influence, John, on later movements like surrealism? Is there is there a connection between him and these perhaps more continental European uh, intellectual movements?
1: There's not a huge amount in terms of surrealism and early sort of 20th century artistic movements, mainly because he's he was, you know, his fame has taken a long time to sort of tip over. And it, uh, it, a lot of it took to about 1960s before his artwork mm. um, became that well-known. There was certain, certain, certain poems, the tiger became well-known and uh, the, the, him, Jerusalem became became very well known and a f- had a, f- a few images, um, but until it was people like Allen Ginsberg picked up on him. Mm. Uh, so he was in academic circles. Ginsberg,
0: of course, who Stuart Brand knew quite well, who who, who perhaps more than anyone else epitomised the counterculture.
1: Yeah, and for uh, you know
0: he, more, I guess, a more powerful figure in the fifties in some ways than the sixties.
1: Yeah, that's probably, that's probably true, but for it all, I mean, Ginsburg, uh, he'd finished college, he was in his New York apartment block, he didn't know what he was doing with his life, he was reading Blake, and then he, and that triggered um, what he called his Blakeian vision, the, the, uh, uh, the experience of the numinous that um, he spent his entire life trying to sort of recreate, and that's what pushed him into becoming a poet, to try and recapture this experience he had after reading Blake. Uh, and so when you follow Ginsberg into to you know the well leary is obviously a good example of, of that and into the the, the counterculture um, you, you can, you can you know, he's key basically he's he's definitely he's definitely key to uh, late 20th century uh,
0: culture John, what is he does he have warnings or promises about the metaverse about augmented reality or virtual reality the thing now that Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook is pioneering, pouring billions of dollars into. What do you think Blake would have thought of I, I think, putting 3D glasses on and imagining other
1: worlds? I think Blake considered that's what we were doing already. For, for Blake, the what appears to be external is internal. Um it's so we don't uh,
0: need the glasses we should already be looking yeah, into well, it no, and, we're already
1: doing it we're already inventing and creating the, the world around us to a greater extent than we may uh like to admit with Blake, with the um you know your your view of the world your opinion of the world uh and the state of your soul essentially the same thing you know as if we're, as a man is so he sees you know the, the world that we perceive is very much our creation. We're responsible for it. Is there um, anything?
0: Is there any truth for Blake in the body? I mean, what do you think he would think about trans the 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 the, um, the contemporary interest in in transgender technology and identity? Did, did he yeah, believe that anything about the body was sacred?
1: Yeah, totally. The the body is completely sacred. The body is part of the soul. In in Blake's what world, what would he,
0: do. he have thought of? uh technology today that allows you to change your gender
1: i mean in his in his visionary sort of states gender does seem to become a little bit fluid and uh, a lot of his artwork uh floating sort of spirit things they're very hard to decide if they're male or female there seems to be it's it switches yeah. quite a bit and in some of his poetry he seems to sort of switch gender uh, quite comfortably um, and although in his normal day to day life, you know, he just comes across as, you know, completely cisgendered, normal 18th century male um, in his imagination. It was much more sort of fluid and, and much more. So I don't think he'd have a, a problem with it personally.
0: Well, it's great stuff. Congratulations, John, again on the book. It's already out in the UK. It's just out in the US this week. William Blake versus the world. Really fascinating take on, on one of the uh, certainly Britain and, and and the West's most uh, innovative, uh, original artists and writers. Uh, in addition, uh, John, to William Blake versus the world, what else should people be reading uh, in early May 2022?
1: Well, I picked a couple uh, of books. Now, I'm not 100% sure how available they are in America. Well, don't worry. But um, I don't know if you've come across... Mrs Death Mrs Death by Selena Gordon Selena Gordon is uh, a poet uh, no. and it's her first novel uh, and it's one of those novels you go yeah this this is written by a real poet and it's it's about uh, a writer called wolf who encounters death death is an old uh, black woman uh, one of those figures that people just ignore and walk past and and uh, uh, and pay no attention to that's that's her vision of death and she she starts writing a biography of of death and it's um, obviously it's going to be darker places but when you start dealing with death really you're, you're talking about being alive and it becomes a really sort of um powerful and moving and uh rewarding uh novel um that i i heartily recommend i think and it's it's um it's nominated for a, a bunch of you know uh yeah we'll have
0: to get selena uh, selena on the show and, and finally oh, John TX, the author of william blake versus the world uh, Who's in charge these days, John? Who's running the world in addition to William
1: Blake? Well, uh, Andrew, I heard it was you. That's that's what I'm told.